Great question. Is there more than Jesus? Nope. Thank you. Good answer. <laughs> well, Trevor mentioned football, right? So uh, it's unusual that opening season, both uh, Carolina, Clemson, and Kentucky are undefeated. Uh, <laughs> and we all played. And, you know, so there we go. Um, how, many, how many Gamecock fans are in the room today? You're not real convinced yet, are you, that you're going to have a good season? Right? A little close game, a little tight there. How about, how about how many Tiger fans in the room? Well, you're, 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 you're still trying to find. How many Kentucky fans in the room? Well, that's hard to hear because you're all laughing. I don't know. There, there, are probably a, there are probably a few here, I'm sure. But uh, now you know how my son, Aaron, felt, who's here this morning with Whitney, uh, how he felt in the seventh grade. Because I... Uh, I had brainwashed him to be a Kentucky fan. I've, I've repented of that, but, uh, but uh, uh, ask God to forgive me. Our daughter backslid and became a Gamecock fan. But other than that, uh, Aaron was a, a Kentucky fan. And it's really hard. Um, I understand now he's got scars from being in middle school here and being a Kentucky fan, you know, whenever you wear your collars and just kind of tough. And uh, I would take him to the uh, Kentucky, uh, to Williams Bryce for the Kentucky uh, Carolina games, and that usually didn't end well. And uh, might have been one game I remember that went in well. But anyway, um, but then there came the time I took him to Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, some generous Gamecock fans uh, gave us tickets for the Kentucky-Carolina game in Lexington, Aaron in the seventh grade, and we got up there. And I never forget the look on his face, and we turned the corner, and for the first time in his, in his life, he saw a sea of blue. He was so excited. You know, he, he knew he was at home at last, right? I am home at last. This is great. But then the only unfortunate part of that experience is we had to sit in the Gamecock section, you know, but, in it, so, but you know, there's a difference between a crowd and a community, you know, a crowd gathers together uh, because a bunch of people are doing something and a crowd can get scary. It really can get scary. We've seen that across the nation uh, as crowds have gathered to, uh, to maybe make a protest against something. And then because there's people in the crowd with a different agenda, uh, things can, can turn violent really quickly. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, uh, we get nervous when a crowd shows up, right? Uh, when I, we have, you know, we have a ministry council meeting, we usually got, you know, 25 faithful. If 50 show up, I'm going like, all right, what's going on here tonight? We've got a crowd here tonight. Something must be going on. But there's a difference in a crowd and a community. You know, a community can be a crowd, but a crowd with a soul. A crowd with a soul. And we gather together here at Mount Horeb and we're much more than a crowd. We're, we're a lot of people. There are over 4,000 members here, but we're more than a crowd. We're a community. We're a community of faith, a family that's defined by our love for Jesus and our love for each other and our love to change the world for Jesus. It defines us. It, it brings us together as family here. Now, we've begun this sermon series uh, last week. You heard Nick preach uh, the first uh, sermon in our eight new core values we've identified. Now, many of these core values have been present uh, in, in the shaping and formation of this church, but now we've named them. And we're going to be spending eight weeks talking about our core values, things that define us. And so here's a definition of core values. Core values are, are those things that bring clarity to the things that matter the most at Mount Horeb. So the things that matter the most in our church. There are ministry distinctives. And these, uh, these core values are going to do four things. They're, they're going to, first of all, guide us. They're the guiding principles that declare who we are. So that if anybody asks you, well, what's Mount Horeb about? 
Well, here's our core values. Here's what we emphasize at Mount Horeb. Uh, Secondly, these core values will generate our strategic plans. What's what's next uh, for the ministry based on these core values? And number three, these core values are guardrails. They're guardrails that keep us on the path to not stray from our calling. Now you can imagine if we were to get 4,000 people uh, in the room at one time, and we ask everybody what we should be doing, there would be probably 4,000 different opinions, uh, 4,000 different ideas. And I, and I get some of them from you. You're wonderful ideas. And if we did everything everybody wanted to do, uh, we would do nothing very well. And so we need to stay on, on the path that God's called us to do and not stray from our calling. So guardrails. Uh, and it's important that we have these core values and we live into those core values. And that's why we spent a lot of time prayerfully considering these core values. I love what Andy Stanley said. He said, he asked the question, is the statement on your wall happening down the hall? So are we living into these core values? Are we putting them in, into practice in the hallways of Mount Horb, in the community, in the streets? And you would agree with that, right? Now, I would think that most of you here, as you, if you're Christians and uh, disciples of Jesus, that you have a cross somewhere in your house, right? A cross somewhere in your house. And that defines one of your key core values, which is Jesus and the cross. But I would ask you, is that happening in your heart day in and day out? Is it defining who you are? as a follower of Jesus. So core values are are great to have and they're great to put on display. But if we're not living into those core values, then we're not being the people that God wants us to be. And then finally, I would say to you that our core values at Mount Horb are grounded in scripture. Every one of these core values is grounded in God's word. That's a true test for a church and a core value of scripture. Now, what I want to say to you is that the core value, you may not find the, you may or you may not find the word for the core value or the phrase in scripture. Like our first one today, which I believe is our most important core value is Jesus first, Jesus always. Now I can take you to scripture that defined that, but I probably can't take you to a verse that says Jesus first, Jesus always. Uh, in the same way we said earlier in the service, the Apostles Creed, which is a theological statement of what we believe. But I can't send you to the passage of scripture where the Apostle Creed is found, but the Apostle Creed does not contradict Scripture. It is very biblically based. And these core values, we believe, are grounded in Scripture. Core values. And our most important core value, I believe, I believe our first core value is Jesus first, Jesus always. Amen? We're talking about Jesus first, Jesus always. Now, here's the definition that we came up with. We are convinced... All things find their true meaning in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us who God is and at the same time who we are meant to be. He has the last word and final say about who we understand ourselves to be and how we live our lives. We believe the greatest thing we can do for the world is lift Jesus up in worship and invite people into a saving relationship with him. Now, all the New Testament is about Jesus. The Gospels are about Jesus. But I believe this passage that Luella read for you 
is the most powerful statement about Jesus Christ, who he is as a person and his work as savior. And I'd like to invite you to uh, stand with me. And I want us to read responsively together. Colossians chapter one, begin with verse 15. Would you stand please? Join me please. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created and is supreme over all creation. God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we cannot see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed, anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme. So he is first in everything, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. Father God, I pray that this morning that the words that I speak will be about Jesus Christ. The words we hear will be about Jesus and that we will have the courage and the desire to make Jesus first in our lives and first in this church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Jesus first. Paul has written for us here in Colossians a hymn. It's a hymn about the supremacy of Jesus. Paul is worshiping here. He's declaring Jesus is preeminent in creation and as redeemer. I looked up the word preeminence. It's not a word we use a lot today. You know, I had to say it a lot, preeminence. It has a, it kind of rolls, preeminence. What does it mean? It means surpassing all others. It means superiority. We sang last week in contemporary that Jesus has no rivals. This is rival time during football. We won't get into that. That would get sidetracked on the rivals. But Jesus Christ has no rivals. And to anyone who is confused about Jesus, Paul makes it clear. Now, Paul is also addressing a heresy here at Colossae that not, people called Gnostics were arguing that Jesus wasn't supreme, that uh, he was uh, created by God and there were other means necessary for salvation, other ways to go about salvation other than Jesus. But Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the source of salvation. He is the supreme authority. We need to hear that today because we live in a culture that doesn't believe that Jesus is supreme. We live in a culture who likes the teachings of Jesus, likes to quote Jesus when it comes to love and compassion and kindness. Now that Jesus, he was a good teacher. Well, but I don't believe he was the son of God. I don't believe that he was God in the flesh. And so not a lot's changed since Paul wrote these words. And you want to scare somebody who's a non-believer in Jesus, 
Start reading to him Colossians chapter one. And they'll go, whoa, that's not the Jesus I heard about. See, we, we have that same challenge. And we as the church, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, don't hesitate to say that Jesus is supreme, that he is the source of our worship. He comes first in all that we do. He has no equal. His authority is not shared with any person, any being, any creation, any angel, any demon. Jesus is preeminent. Amen? I could probably sit down and we could go home now because that's the most important truth. Uh, Jesus is first over all things. I was blessed uh, in January to again, at the end of January, 1st of February to be uh, Lynn and I at the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, where we gathered with 3,000, 3,500 people who came together to pray uh, for our nation, uh, to meet with legislatures, legislators, uh, congressmen, senators, and, and to pray for the United States. There were leaders from all over the world there. And all of us got this little book, this little black nondescript book that's titled Jesus. And as I looked through this book, I love this little book and I wanted to get a copy of it, but there is no uh, publishing in information. There's no copyright. There's, no, there's nowhere, it's, it's, and there's nothing other than the title and the contents. And, and I love the contents. According to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John, and then the last chapter begins the acts of the ambassadors. And the entire book is about Jesus, the gospels. There's no verses, just chapters about Jesus. And and in talking with the organizers of the National Prayer Breakfast, they truly believe if we will get the words of Jesus into the hands of people, that Jesus will draw all people to himself. And that we are to lift up the words of Jesus and tell the story of Jesus as written in the gospels. We don't talk about our denominations. We don't talk about our religious preferences. We talk about Jesus. And don't you know that religion is one of the most controversial conversations you can have with anyone? But I would challenge you to talk about Jesus. And, and we have the Gospels and we have the book about Jesus. Jesus is first over all things. Paul declares that Jesus is the creator of all. Did anybody catch the eclipse? I, did anybody miss the eclipse? <laughs> if you missed the eclipse, you were, you, you, you were an anomaly, I'll just say. Um, weren't we all impressed by the eclipse? Blown away by the eclipse. But my concern, were we more impressed by the eclipse or the creator who made the eclipse? You know, we, uh, probably one of the greatest sins that we struggle with in our culture is we are tempted and we often fail this temptation to worship the creation over the creator. We love the creation. Man, we love Lake Murray. We, we, we love our houses, our homes, our possessions. We love to travel the world and look at the creation. We, we post pictures of it on Facebook. Oh man, look where I'm at this weekend. Look at me, selfie here. I'm in this beautiful place. You know, we need to make sure that we're not worshiping, elevating the creation over the creator. Weren't you amazed at how accurate the scientists were on tracking the eclipse? 
I mean, down to the second, right? I mean, it was to the second that that thing happened exactly like this. That would happen all over the U.S. from, from Salem, Oregon, all the way to Charleston, South Carolina, right on time. I mean, exactly down to the second on time. That, that's amazing. And as amazing as that is, those scientists cannot make it happen again. Oh, it's so neat. We're going to do that again next week, right? Uh, y'all, y'all tune in next week. We're going to do it again. We sold a lot of glasses. Let's do it again. You know, we can't do it. In fact, it'll be 400 years until it happens in the same place here in South Carolina. You know, if we were in charge of the eclipse, we would have the moon running into the sun rather than passing in front of the sun, right? We, we would mess it up. Um, God is the creator. And, and wasn't it amazing that just before totality, Lynn and I had our little lawn chairs out on the, on the how many of y'all had, had your little lawn chair out sitting watching, you know, some of you are on the boat, on the lake. I saw some amazing pictures. But we're all sitting there watching, waiting for that totality moment, right? Right when everything, when it's safe, take the glasses off, right? Is it, is it safe yet? Is it safe yet? Is it safe yet? Um, but how everything got quiet. Everything got quiet. And, and, and for the first time in, a long, long time, millions and millions of Americans were not looking down. We weren't looking at our iPhones, you know. We weren't texting somebody. Surely you weren't texting at the moment of totality. But millions and millions of eyes were looking up. What do you think God thought about that? Hey, look at these people. Hey, they're looking, they're looking up. I haven't seen this many people look up in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. I love what the psalmist said. He said, be still and what? know that I'm God. I want to believe that during those moments that millions of people all over the U.S. were humbled to recognize that there is a creator that made all this happen. And Jesus is the creator. But he's also the sustainer. He sustains all of this. I didn't know this, but someplace in the world, every 18 months, a total eclipse happens. Did you know that? Every 18 months, somewhere in the world, a total eclipse happens. It's been going on since the beginning of time. And it'll go on till the end of time. And there are some people who need to get a life who travel all over the world every 18 months to see the eclipse. Seriously? I mean, I enjoyed it, but I got a few more things to do than follow the eclipse around. How's that possible Every 18 months, something so magnificent happens because Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer. I love this definition from Constable in his uh, commentary on, on Colossians. He says, every law of science and of nature is in fact an expression of the thought of God. The eclipse was not Hollywood's idea. Nobody thought about it. God originated it. It is by these laws, he says, and therefore by the mind of God that the universe hangs together and does not disintegrate into chaos. Thanks be to God, right? Thanks be to God that he has this in his hands. And without his involvement, it would turn into chaos. It would crumble apart. And if he can create and sustain the universe, can make something like an eclipse happen, surely... Surely he can help you in your mess. Surely he can hold you together when you feel like everything is falling apart. And God put within us this ability to enjoy the creation. And we enjoy the eclipse. 
But our greatest need isn't to be inspired by creation. Our greatest need is not to be impressed by the creation. In fact, if our greatest need, someone said, had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. But since our greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. He sent us a savior. His name is Jesus. See, Jesus chose to enter his own creation. The creator chose to enter his creation as the son of God. God incarnate, God in the flesh. Jesus, the creator, chose to take on a body, reveal to us who God is and who we're meant to be. The creator chose to suffer. He chose to be crucified. He experienced resurrection. Why? Why did the creator do that? So he could meet our greatest need, which is forgiveness, which is grace and mercy. Because all of us here this morning are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are broken people. The creator, God himself in the flesh came to meet our greatest need. Colossians goes on to say in verse 19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. That's why we have a cross right here. That's why we celebrate communion because we're celebrating that Christ's blood was shed so that our sins could be forgiven. Reconciled, what does it mean? To be made right with God. That's our greatest need. Whatever you're dealing with today, whatever you're struggling with, your greatest need is to bring God into the problem, is to bring God into the situation, is to ask God to get involved. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He has a power to move in your life, to give you peace. Because Jesus, the creator, came in the flesh, he is first over the church. This is his church. Now, why did Jesus create the church? You know, one of the good things about preaching this message is that God has already revealed himself to everyone in this room through creation. And then God gave us the church. But sometimes the church doesn't look like Jesus because we kind of get in there and mess it up. So I want to, want to know what is the purpose of the church? And I said this in the earlier service, uh, the purpose of the church is not for you to come and hear a good sermon or to hear a good song or to find your favorite seat or to find your favorite parking place. What is the purpose of the church? It is to reveal the love and character of Jesus. And so that people see emanating from this place and from every church that meets who Jesus is. 
Not what we, what our opinion is, <laughs> not what we like and what we don't like, but who Jesus is, the character of Jesus, the, the love of Jesus, and to continue his mission, his mission. And his mission is clear. It's revealed in scripture as we, he said, my mission is to come and bring good news to the poor, to set the captives free, to cause the blind to see and the oppressed to be set free. My mission is to go and make disciples of all people all over the world of Jesus. That's the church. And that's who you and I are called to be here at Mount Horeb. Jesus first, Jesus always. And why is that? Because Jesus will have the final say. <laughs> Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad there's not a committee that's going to have the final say? You know, we're going to go before a committee and they're going to vote on whether or not. No, Jesus is the alpha and he's the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He has a final say over everything. And he has all authority. He said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven after the resurrection, he says, I have been given all authority and on, on heaven and on earth, all authority, not some of the authority, not authority on Sunday, but all authority is in his power. And as his followers, we live into that. So when we make Jesus first at Mount Horeb, what does it look like? I want to give you two of the greatest things I think we can do. Now, there's many things we can do, but two of the greatest things we can do is this, is number one, is make Jesus preeminent in worship. And when we come here to worship, it's about Jesus. When we stand in this pulpit to preach, it's about Jesus. And we're committed to excellence in worship at Mount Horeb. Both contemporary worship and traditional worship. Traditional is where we began. And I want you to hear from me that our commitment is to continue with excellence in traditional worship, which is good, and contemporary worship, which is good. Because as long as we're lifting up Jesus, that's what's important. Amen? Amen. And I want to thank you who attend traditional worship for helping make contemporary worship possible. Because without you, we wouldn't have a contemporary worship building. And it has grown three times larger than traditional. Amen? Are you excited about that? Let me ask you two questions. Are you excited that we're going to continue to do traditional worship with excellence? Yes. Now, again, you, if you're all not, I need to know about that, okay? Because uh, I'm, I'm not on a limb right here with you, okay? I'm with you here on this. Uh, but I want you to be committed to that too. Committed to excellence in worship. But also, aren't you excited that three times more people are going to contemporary? You didn't seem as excited about that. <laughs> but we need to be, we need to celebrate that, right? Amen? Thank you. That's good. I would think that if this service was three times larger, you would be dancing in the aisles. Well, you'd be upset because somebody got your pew, but a bit of that. But uh, uh, some of you would be, not all of you, some of you would be. But with that said, we need to be celebrating that Jesus is being lifted up in whatever style of worship it is. And that people are coming to know Jesus Christ at Mount Horeb. That we all got skin in the game. Right, Pete? I, I love that we are friends in music. It's a great ministry. Uh, Zach Williams, one of the brightest young artists, will be here on September 24th. I'd love to fill that room up over there. Great contemporary artist. We've got a great uh, gospel group coming in next spring. David Crowder back in January. But if worship is going to be preeminent, we've got to demonstrate it, not just by showing up on Sunday, but also by serving here in worship. 
I want you to know that it's not okay just to come and sit in a pew. We believe everybody should get involved in worship, whether it's singing or whether it's serving. And right now we have a lot of needs in our worship services. What are they? Well, we need somebody to run cameras. We need somebody to do this wonderful PowerPoint. We need additional volunteers. We need more people to play in the orchestra. Chris Bussell, who blessed us with an incredible uh, saxophone piece this morning, is a volunteer. He does as a volunteer. But you don't have to be that good, trust me, right? You don't have to be that good. But, uh, but, but we, need to, we need to all step up. I and mean, we, we should not have any, any if 4,000 members, we should not have any, we should have a waiting list for people wanting to serve. Can I get a second to that? So I would encourage you to get involved in worship here whether it's in traditional or contemporary, serving somewhere, take a turn, take a rotation. Appreciate these people that's, that serve all over our church, choir members who serve. You know, we need, we need to have a standing waiting list in the choir, right? Amen. Right, we do. Uh, and they do a great job. We thank them for that, but we need to grow our ministries. So I just encourage you to do that. If Jesus is preeminent in worship, it needs to be preeminent in our service. And the second thing, invite people into saving relationship with Jesus that we're called to go out and invite people into a saving relationship with Jesus. Our mission is clear. It is not to make more Methodists. It is not to make more Mount Horbites. That is a word. People call themselves Horbites all the time. Okay. But it is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we have a new member class. The first thing I talk about uh, is not Mount Horeb and it's not the Methodist church. It's about becoming a disciple of Jesus. And we, we, we share the plan of salvation and we invite people into a saving relationship with Jesus. And we pray a prayer of salvation for two reasons. I believe in a group of 45 or 30 people that there's somebody in the room that has not yet given their life to Jesus. They confused church membership with salvation. And that's a bad mistake to make. Because when you stand in front of the Lord one day, he's not going to ask you what church you're a member of. You know that, right? That's not on the final exam. You don't have to be able to spell Methodist to get into heaven, right? But you need to be able to spell Jesus. He needs to be in your heart and your life. But the second reason I do this, because I hope that I know that you're called to go do that too. That you have a friend or a relative or a neighbor who needs to meet Jesus. And you need to know how to lead them to Jesus. Let me ask you a really uh, challenging question if you'll be honest about this. Do you talk more about Mount Horeb or about Jesus? Now, we've got a lot of great things to talk about. There's a lot of great things going on, but do you talk more about Mount Horeb or do you talk more about Jesus? If Jesus is truly first, you talk about Jesus more than you talk about the church. And and some of you are guilty of this. I know you are. You invite people to church, so we'll tell them about Jesus. You know, if I get them to come, then the pastors will tell them about Jesus. I don't have to. That's not good. You need and I need to freely tell people about Jesus. Don't be ashamed of him. He's not ashamed of you. And people want to know more about your relationship with Jesus than they know about your relationship with your church. So let's work on making Jesus preeminent in in those areas of our life. Jesus always. What does it mean to Jesus always? Proverbs 3 says it this way. If you want favor with both God and man and a reputation for good judgment and common sense, then trust the Lord completely. Don't ever trust yourself. Read it with me. In everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Too often times we treat Jesus like a flu shot. Anybody here got a flu shot? right? 
you get just a little bit of the flu, but not enough to make you sick. And how many of you get nervous, right? You're just hoping, man. They said, I'm not going to get the flu. And you know, you're checking your temperature, you know, man, I'm good. I'm good. I made it 24 hours. I ain't got the flu. That's good. Hey, when I got the flu, everybody knows I got the flu, right? I mean, I got the flu. Everybody knows I got the flu. Everybody's hearing about I got the flu, you know? Lynn's different. Lynn, Lynn gets the flu. She goes off in isolation and stays in there and comes out later. You over here? I'm good. I'm good now. Not me. I need help. I got the flu, right? How many of you are like this? Come on now, own up. If you got the flu, everybody knows you got the flu, right? Well, it's the same thing of becoming a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, everybody should know you're a follower of Jesus. Nobody should be shocked that you're a follower of Jesus. Man, I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I'm shocked. Yeah, so you, you go to church? I didn't know that. You know? You know? Got just a little bit of Jesus, but not at the tailgate. Now, tailgate, I ain't got Jesus at the tailgate. Right? We're on Labor Day on the lake. Now, no, sit down. No. You go to church? Well, I go to church, but I don't know about Jesus. Uh, but anyway, you, you need to know. And let me give you an acrostic real quickly. Um, this is not every way you make Jesus first, but these are five ways you can get started. And I'm going to make you uncomfortable right off the bat. I'm going to spell first for you. The first is finances. It's not even October yet, right? And I'm going to go on this leave, so I might as well get it in there, right? So uh, finances. Jesus said it, not Jeff, not Nick, not Faye. Jesus said, where your treasure is is where your heart will be. You will demonstrate your trust and honor for God when you put him first in your finances. Now, here's a key. Here's a sad bit of information for you. About half the people that attend this church don't have Jesus first in their finances because they don't give anything to the church. That's a disappointing bit of information to share. I would want to be a church where Jesus comes first because trust me, when you stand before heaven one day and God in heaven before God, he's going to say, what did you do with your finances? Well, I did, I, I, you know, I, I, I I couldn't trust you with that. I could trust you with my life, but not my checkbook because I'm not sure you can handle that part. And that's, that's, my only, my, that's my only understanding of not putting Jesus first in our finances is that God can't handle it. One of my best sermons I ever preached on finances was, um, first week was, do you trust God? Oh, everybody, I, I trust God. Great sermon, Pastor Jeff. My second week was, can God trust you? Ooh, not sure about that one, you know? So finances, number one, I believe that's number one. Number two is interest, your hobbies, your pursuits. I've done stepped on some toes this morning, I know. Your relationships, is he first in your relationships? Your schedules, is he first on your calendar? Do you start your day with him? Do you end your day with him? And troubles, so that spells first. Finances, interest, relationship, schedules, troubles. Is Jesus your first choice or your last resort? When you're in trouble? Or is that the only time you come to him when you're in trouble? So work on those things, putting Jesus first. And then I would say to you finally this morning, Jesus holds all things together. Stanford University has uh, something called a linear accelerator. A bunch of smart people there at Stanford. It's a two mile long atom smasher. It's a lever that scientists use to pry the lid off the secrets of matter. The tiny world of the atom, the neutron, the proton. And these scientists, as they studied, they discovered this complexity they never dreamed of. It's complicated. 
A little early on that, yeah, but that's okay. We'll hold on to that thought. The, 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 the nuclear thing here we're talking about. But there's this kind of cosmic glue that holds all things together. And uh, they don't have a name for it. They call it cosmic glue. I think Paul gave it a name called Jesus. Jesus holds it all together. There's something called laminin. It's a protein cohesion molecule that holds all of our cells together. Without laminin, our bodies would not survive. And that's a medical drawing of laminin. That's what the scientists call laminin. And a non-believer came over that years ago to define the molecule laminin in all of our bodies. Let me give you the picture of laminin under a microscope. That's what actually the molecule looks like. Someone said that all great designers like to leave their mark. You see, God has placed his DNA in all of us, whether it's in laminin or your brain cells or your blood cells, in your psyche, in your emotions, you've got God's DNA in you. The creator of the universe breathed his spirit into you, into every living being. The key is, what will we do with it? What will we do with God's DNA that's inside of us? Will we invite Jesus to come fully into our life? I love the childhood poem, you know it. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. Why? Because Humpty's life was shattered. It was broken. And so he went to the king and said, hey, I need some help. Went to the king's men, the king's horses. Nobody could help old Humpty. And maybe you've tried everything and your life has fallen apart. Your life is shattered. Your life is broken. And you've tried everything. Let me tell you about the King of Kings. His name is Jesus, and he is first in creation. And you can finish the poem like this now. If you find yourself broken at the foot of a wall, to the King of Kings you must give a call. And just like Humpty Dumpty of old, Christ will come and make you whole. That's Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Creator of the world, can make you whole today. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is the creator and he is the redeemer and that our focus is on him today. And Lord, we want our focus to be on him every day. Lord Jesus, you told us in the word that we should take up our cross daily, deny ourselves and follow you. Lord, God, help me in about an hour from now to put you first again in my life. It is, you are right now, but in two hours and three hours and later tonight before I go to bed to, to remind myself that you're first in my life. In the morning when I get up, say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be first in my life. Around 11 o'clock tomorrow, Lord Jesus, be first in my life again. And Father God, you know that we struggle making you first. It's really hard. We, we know it's the right thing to do, but we just struggle with it. So forgive us for not making you first. And for that person today whose life is totally crumbled, I pray that they would invite Jesus into the mess and that with your divine creative power, you would put things back together again for your glory, for your purpose.
In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.